Friends, we are, um, as I said, in this series uh, talking about as God becomes homeless. And in this Advent season, uh, we, we like to think more about homecoming and celebration and, and family and all of that. But really the central message of Advent is that our God and all of God's power and majesty and, and separateness, God left home to come and be with us, put on our flesh in order to be with us in our brokenness and to bring uh, salvation, healing, understanding, all of that. And so we've been talking about what does that mean when God becomes homeless? And even Christ in his life and his ministry throughout his life um, was a, a bit of a, he, he was kind of a vagabond. He, he went from place to place and oftentimes slept in other people's cores and, and his, his disciples did the same. He often sent them out saying, don't bring anything on the goodwill of, uh, of others to care for them as they were in a way homeless. What does that mean for us as we embody the gospel now going forward and, and with that understanding of the homelessness of God? Um, this morning, I'm, I'm glad that Nick uh, can, can speak with us. Some of you might know it was about four years ago, four years ago that we hired Nick, uh, a little more than four years ago, as we were trying to be a church that could connect in a new way with people who probably weren't going to traditionally come to a traditional church like this. As we know, fewer and fewer people are going to traditional churches like this um, throughout our country, not just in, in Kansas City and certainly not our denomination. And so we wanted to, as Second Presbyterian Church has actually done dozens of times before, think about how do we plant a new kind of church? How do we do something that will connect with people that maybe we can't, but we recognize God's gifts and God's ways are diverse and beautiful. And so we set out on a, on a search. And uh, we interviewed a number of people, and we ended up hiring Nick Pickrell, who um, at the time was uh, living uh, with homeless people um, in, at Cherith Brook in the Northeast. Uh, check, check. Okay, I'm just going to keep walking. Uh, and we were... Man, so Nick uh, was able... I think it's going to work. Uh, Nick was able to join us, uh, brought his musical skills as well, and for, for about a year spent time with a number of us um, kind of doing what we called community exegesis. We hired to be our uh, neighborhood missionary and reintroduced us to our neighbors around here, reintroduced us to UMKC, and brought together a group of young adults who started meeting together early, and then three years ago birthed something called the Open Table. Inside your bulletin, you will see... Um, a timeline of how the open table came together um, and and what they've done. It's, it's fairly dizzying, the number of things that have taken place in the last three years. I would encourage you to take a look at that and to give thanks for the fact that the open table wouldn't exist uh, if it wasn't for Second Presbyterian Church. The money, the time, the energy, the resources that all of you have poured into that. Um, the Open Table is, is now uh, one of, if not the fastest growing church in our presbytery. It is one of the, actually one of the most generous worshiping communities in our presbytery. I think it's of the hundred churches in our presbytery, it's like number 15 on the amount of money that it gives back to the presbytery. Uh, number, I think we're in the top 10. Top 10. Uh, so it's a new way of doing church. If you were to go to the Open Table, it would not look like this. I can promise you that. Uh, but we have, on average, 80 or 90 people who are primarily in their 20s and 30s that are gathering together downstairs on the second and fourth Sundays. Um, and, and Nick is now in the process of becoming uh, ordained as a certified or a commissioned ruling elder, which means basically he will be the pastor for the open table 
uh, with the support of and the endorsement of our presbytery and our church. So it's a, it's a different way of doing church, and some of us are scratching our heads. Uh, you know, this isn't the way we planted churches, you know, 50 years ago in the Presbyterian church. Well, yeah, that's right. Uh, things are different than they were 50 years ago, and we're very fortunate that we've got a thriving new worshiping community, a new church plant happening in and amongst us, and that we have uh, someone who has uh, spent a fair amount of time um, not only curating that, but also continuing to care for the homeless to, uh, to preach our final sermon on this series. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. And, uh, and many thanks to Paul for the, the splash of color that I get to wear for you this morning. So um, today we're going to be con uh, continuing our series, When God Becomes Homeless, and we're going to start with a little reflection. So the passage that we're going to look at today comes from <clears throat> Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 30 through 44. And um, as I read this passage, I just invite you to simply notice uh, any words or phrases that stick out to you. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him everything they had done and taught. Many people were coming and going, so there was no time to eat. He said to the, to the apostles, Come by yourselves to the, a secluded place and rest for a while. They departed in a boat by themselves for a deserted place. Many people saw them leaving and recognized them, so they ran ahead from all the cities and arrived before them. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. Late in the day, his disciples came to him and said, This is an isolated place, and it's already late in the day. Send them away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy something to eat for themselves. He replied, You give them something to eat. But they said to him, Should we go off and buy bread worth almost eight months' pay and give it to them to eat? He said to them, How much bread do you have? Take a look. After checking, they said, Five loaves of bread and two fish. He directed the disciples to seat all the people in groups as though they were having a banquet on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke the loaves into pieces, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate until they were full. They filled twelve baskets with the leftover pieces of bread and fish. About 5,000 had eaten. This is the word of the Lord. So the scripture is going to replay itself on the screen. And while that happens, I invite us to take a few moments to reflect silently on what stood out to you. What feelings came up for you when this passage was read? What word or phrase caught your ear. Why do you think that phrase stood out to you? Did it bring up any questions for you? Did you have a unique insight?
Now I'm going to give us some background information on the story that could influence how we read this scripture. Uh, local New Testament scholar Dr. David May talks about how in Jesus' day, the vast majority of the population was living well below the poverty line, with huge sums of money being extracted from the poor and given to Rome and Rome's puppet kings. And in this case, that king's name was Herod Antipas. So how did Rome and kings like Herod Antipas accomplish this? They did so through heavy taxation and the monopolizing of particular goods and surfaces essential for life. Here's an example. Herod Antipas wanted to have luxury goods like wine on hand for the elites in the cities, and so he instructed the peasants to grow grapevines instead of things that they needed, like wheat and barley. And this resulted, naturally, in a number of peasants not being able to grow the food that they needed to survive. But, conveniently, Herod just happened to own the bread company, uh, uh, the bread industry, rather, in Sepphoris, and the fish market in Tiberias. That is interesting. Now let's take a look at what immediately precedes Jesus feeding the multitudes. First, there's an account of Jesus sending the disciples out to local villages without provisions for food. Then there's a story about a backroom meeting involving Herod, who is trying to figure out what to do with this Jesus character who keeps on healing people. Herod's birthday then rolls around, and at the birthday celebration, it's decided that they are going to behead John the Baptist, and that is exactly what they do. Then, the feeding of the 5,000. So, with this new information, let's take a moment, the scripture's going to come back on the screens again, and let's reflect once more. What insights, what new insights, if any, come to mind? Does this new information change what you originally thought about this passage? Does it raise new questions for you? Does it answer questions that you had? What new information, what new dimension does this information bring to the text? So, did your thoughts on this story change before and after the background information was given? I mean, it certainly added a political dimension to the story, right? I didn't see that one coming. Uh, the disciples were asked to offer what they had, and they produced five loaves of bread and two fish. Uh, the two items that Herod stands to make a lot of money from. Jesus then breaks the bread, prays for the meal enthrows his own banquet, but it's a banquet that is entirely different than the one that Herod threw, threw earlier. In this banquet, Jesus feeds 5,000 people who are not in a position of power, and he does so with the very items that Herod claims to own, 
that Herod feels entitled to. This act of feeding the multitudes would have been a slap in the face to Herod because what is being said is that Herod has no control over things like fish or bread, the stuff of life. Herod doesn't own it. God does. And I imagine that this information also probably brings new light to a prayer that we'll be praying later on today. Give us this day our daily bread. It has a different ring to it now, doesn't it? Okay, so let's add one more dimension to this story because I just can't help it. Um, at this time, I invite you all to close your eyes and just imagine as I paint a picture of the feeding of the 5,000. Imagine if this was happening today in Kansas City, in a place like Prospect Park. There are many who hear about Jesus' arrival, so hundreds of folks congregate in said park. Jesus, noticing the crowds, asks his disciples to feed the people. They find five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus breaks the bread, prays over it, and begins to serve the folks who have gathered. It is quite the banquet. But then, in the middle of all the eating and conversation, in walks some police officers, folks from the health department, and a police helicopter is flying overhead. The police and the health department folks mention that they received complaints from local stakeholders, so they are going to have to shut this banquet down. They ask who is in charge of this organization, and Jesus responds by saying, this isn't an organization, it's just a group of friends gathering together to share a meal in a park. They ask Jesus if he has a permit to serve food to the public. And they ask where the fish and bread came from. Was it prepared in a commercial kitchen? What temperature was it kept at? Why isn't anyone serving the food wearing gloves? Where's the hand-washing station? While this questioning continues, so does the food distribution. Because the banquet isn't stopping, the inspectors pull out large trash bags and begin collecting the food, pouring bleach on it, citing public safety concerns. You can open your eyes. Recently, Kansas City made national news when a collective called Free Hot Soup had their Sunday food distribution in multiple parks halted as police and health department officials said that their gathering in the park was illegal because they did not have a permit. When the group said that they were still going to continue to serve food after the officials had left, uh, the health department folks gathered up all the food, put it in large trash bags, and proceeded to pour bleach on it uh, to make the food inedible. This all happened while many folks were still waiting in line to have lunch. Free hot soup got shut down that day, and if Jesus were feeding the multitudes in Kansas City in the year 2018, Jesus' operation would have also gotten shut down. A quick disclaimer, know that I'm not trying to endorse <laughs> or indict any individual. Um, I don't know the folks at Free Hot Soup, and I don't believe that the officials who were there actually wanted to be destroying food that was intended for the houseless. So just to get that out there <laughs> in disclaimer. The feeding of the multitudes like the free hot soup meals seem innocuous 
I mean, Jesus just performed a freaking miracle, right? Like he fed 5,000 people. These people were fed. There's nothing controversial there. And in the days following the free hot soup uh, and, and the response that followed from the, the health department, these things also seem to be innocuous. The health department spoke in their response to the free hot soup um, incident. They talked about how they destroyed the food in order to ensure that foodborne illnesses weren't spread amongst an already vulnerable population. On the surface, how can you argue with that? Like, of course, we want the most vulnerable ones among us to be kept safe. But when we dig a little deeper, we notice new dimensions and new wrinkles in the story. In Jesus' story, we learn that Herod oppressed people through heavy taxation and the monopolizing of basic goods folks needed to survive. Suddenly, this miracle that Jesus performed takes on a more subversive tone with Jesus challenging this unjust system by feeding 5,000 people with fish and bread. And he does it without giving Herod a dime. This miracle is now not only a miracle, but is also a form of resistance to the policies that were keeping people impoverished. The story has changed. Similarly, when we look again at the health department response and we dig a little deeper, we begin to see some new wrinkles in that story as well. The Kansas City Star reported that a nearby neighborhood association had listed that one of their top priorities was to figure out ways to remove folks who were sleeping and congregating in the park. The article also went on to say that there were no reported cases of foodborne illnesses coming from this group's gatherings. The health department, who is doing very important work when it comes to equity and public health, can be legitimately concerned for the health of KC's most vulnerable citizens. But we now hopefully can also see that other groups could have been pressuring the city for a response to that weekly meal that happened in the park. This information adds another wrinkle to the story, another dimension, and now we're forced to ask different questions. We may now find ourselves asking if it is actually in fact possible that an anti-homeless sentiment from the neighborhoods where free hot soup was serving could have led to the city shutting down their operations that Sunday. And as we look into Jesus' birth this Advent season, we remember how Jesus came into the world. He was homeless, born of a young, unwed mother. These were not identities fitting of the coming Messiah. And Jesus' hometown also did not have the best reputation in the first century. In John 1, Nathaniel, when hearing about Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Does that sound familiar? It should. We do this all the time today. You see, Jesus came into the world with different levels of negative prejudice leveled against him, not unlike many of the people he healed and welcomed to the table throughout his ministry. Our friends who find themselves sleeping on the streets today also have different levels of negative prejudice being leveled against them. I know this because how can we not notice? It is impossible to grow up in the States and not be shaped by this kind of social conditioning. It is everywhere. We have local stories that have almost become folklore of panhandlers who are lying about their situation and are actually pulling in a cool 60K from panhandling alone. We have those who are buying lobsters with food stamps 
Who cares if they buy lobsters with food stamps? We gotta celebrate a little. And of course, everyone who's homeless has put themselves there. They made bad decisions, and so they're simply living out the consequences of their actions. I remember internalizing these exact messages that taught me to believe that everyone experiencing homelessness and addiction just needed a little bit more Jesus, a little bit more education, and then obviously they wouldn't be in that predicament anymore. I also had many preconceived notions of how homeless folks ended up on the streets, and they all hinged on the myth that character flaws is what led to their situation. The Poor People's Campaign, a national movement seeking to actually organize the nation's poor and low-wealth folks, recently released a national audit on the state of our nation's poor called The Souls of Poor Folk. It is an incredible audit. I highly encourage everybody to read it. And it perfectly sums up what kind of things the poor and homeless folks are up against. I'm going to share a few excerpts with you. There have long existed assumptions that people who are in need of public assistance have character flaws such as laziness and a lack of a moral compass that have made them poor. From the Moynihan Report in 1965 to Ronald Reagan's racial, racist depiction of the mythical welfare queen, poor heads of families, especially single mothers, have been demonized and treated like the recalcitrant children in need of character building. The report then goes on to say, what the false picture of the welfare queen covers up are the underlying factors that create and perpetuate economic need among the poor. Such factors include poor jobs and low wages, uh, lack of affordable and safe childcare, a segregated educational system that adversely affects poor students, particularly those of color, the impact of the criminal justice system on the poor, especially on poor people of color, and overall, the system of white supremacy that divides and oppresses the poor. Folks, it's clear that we, as a society, continue to struggle with how to view those without homes. It's easy to just accept the prevailing narratives about how homeless folks deserve their lot in life because they were the cause of their own poverty. It's easy because it absolves us. We had no part to play in the problem, so why should we play a part in the solution? This line of thinking leads directly to the criminalization of the poor. In Kansas City, this has led to policies that make it illegal to sleep in parks, to serve food outdoors without a permit, and to panhandle in certain districts. It's also resulted in the redesign of our benches so no one can sleep on them. They have a large bar in between now. And helpful brochures, like the ones that I was handed on the plaza. Here's what it says. Charity and concern for the homeless are wonderful things, but a quarter here and a dime there can add up to little more than a life of continued dysfunction and or social isolation. Your spare change may actually be hurting a person in need by enabling him or her to delay seeking treatment and help. This pamphlet then goes on to suggest giving to a charitable organization instead. I hope we can see what's really going on in that brochure. These folks aren't primarily concerned with the well-being of the folks who are panhandling on the plaza. This is a way to hopefully get folks to stop giving to the panhandlers so the panhandlers move from the plaza. That's what that is. It's a slick PR move, but you gotta dig a little deeper. See, the problem with these things, the problem with this line of thinking is that it just isn't Christian. Thinking about the Christmas story, 
When people, cities, and neighborhood associations take a not-in-my-backyard approach, we are effectively saying to Mary and Joseph that there is no room at the inn. Move along. This society has no room for you. I have to believe, though, that this attitude can change. I'm just going to read off a few quick stats for you. Did you know that there are nearly um, 140 million people who are either poor or low income when adding in out-of-pocket expenses for food, clothing, housing, and utilities and federal assistance? That's a large number. Did you know that in 2017 there was actually no state or county in the nation where someone making the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour could afford even a one-bedroom home at market rate? In order to do that, the average income that one would need to be making is $17.14 an hour. Did you know that between 2.5 and 3.5 million individuals comprise the sheltered homeless population in the U.S. each year? And that an additional 7.4 million additional uh, individuals were estimated to be on the brink of homelessness, having lost their own homes and transitioned into the homes of others. I say these stats because I think it's telling us something. I think it's telling us that we, the United States, have to get our house in order. Are we really to believe that 140 million people are poor in the U.S. and it happens entirely because of inherent character flaws like laziness? No. That is not it. And if we think that's the it, if we think that's the it, if we think that's it, I think we're missing the mark. I think this evidence points to our systems being the thing that's in need of change. Jesus understood this. Jesus had a lived experience of suffering. He witnessed the suffering of others. He offered community, respite, and healing to folks who were kicked aside by society. And he asked why the society was operating the way that it was. Jesus consistently challenged systems that exploited many as it was antithetical to the way the community of God's people was to operate. And unfortunately, we are all complicit in these systems, myself included. I don't say this to blame or shame anybody. It's just a fact. The wheels of oppression have been moving, and they are going to continue to move until we resist, like Jesus did by feeding the multitudes. In Kansas City, social services have been concentrated in a couple of neighborhoods, one of them being the historic Northeast, and many other neighborhoods fight to keep it that way. I'm reminded of a safe house that was prevented from opening in a midtown neighborhood uh, for women who were fleeing uh, prostitution. I'm reminded of a neighborhood in the Northland that was successfully thwarted when um, a housing development that proposed a certain percentage of the housing units to go to low-income housing. They shut that thing down. Folks, where are the poor to go? Where will the poor be received and welcomed in the community? By saying no to affordable housing near our homes, we are saying there is no room for you at the end, Jesus. By saying no to the safe houses or soup kitchen, we are saying that there's no room for you here. Move along. We are saying that I am not my sister's keeper. I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not my sibling's keeper. There is hope, though. We can all do something about this. We can use our brains, our big old brains, to educate ourselves on the issues. We can use our hearts to reflect on the ways that we are complicit in unjust systems. 
and to unpack the ways that we've been socialized to view folks without homes. We can use our voices to change unhelpful narratives that dehumanize the houseless. We can use our influence to create policy that actually address root causes of poverty instead of more ordinances that make being poor a punishable offense. We can share what we have with others, making space at our tables for folks without a home. And by doing so, guess what? We create room for Jesus at the end. By doing so, we remove the stigmas associated with being from Nazareth. By doing so, we become our siblings keeper once again. St. Francis fam famously said, start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you're doing the impossible. In this season of Advent, let's get our house in order. Let's make room at the inn. Let's be our siblings keeper. Because when we do, we get to glimpse the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.